I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. everyone to Wildcat Radio, your podcast source for Pac-12 football news, Pac-12 basketball news, Pac-12 gambling advice, and the home of the Beta Rank College Football Statistical Model. Thanks for joining us. This is Brian Conger, and we have a good show in store for you. Quick note, I am on the road and forgot to pack my microphone, and when we first started recording, we were talking about Mike Leach leaving to Mississippi State. Still have a lot of that conversation, but what we found out is when we were recording, there was an echo, and so I have taken out that portion of the podcast. It was only about four or five minutes. Uh, we talked a lot about Mike Leach, so there's going to be a lot of that still in this uh, podcast, but uh, my apologies for the uh, kind of the quick cut in, but I'm joined as always by Max Meyer and by Rob Bowron, and you can subscribe to the podcast for free on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn Radio, or follow us on Twitter at 12PackRadio, 12PAC Radio. And without further ado, here is that podcast without the awkward echoing sound. Thanks for tuning in. Or something like Leech uh, with the air raid. Uh, I think that you can definitely uh, surprise SEC defenses. And I, I feel like with the SEC, there were quite a few vulnerable SEC defenses this season. As I, I just feel like it's it's become a much more offensive focused league. And they still have the athletes on defense. But I just feel like the offenses have had the upper hand. So I, I, I think it's a high... I think it's a high risk, high reward hire, but with college football's win now culture, those are the type of hires that you need to make if you want to really go towards the next level. And it seems like Mississippi State wants to do that uh, with firing Moorhead. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how they fare because they've had some decent teams over the last, oh, shoot, six to seven years. And it's gone up and down, but there's been some good quarterbacks. Obviously, Dax Prescott uh, being the uh, Dak Prescott being the like premier guy over there and the whole Stark Vegas thing that they had going before their coach moved on to Florida. Rob, do you think that this is going to be a good fit for Mississippi State moving into the next couple of years? I mean, it's entirely po- I mean, the SEC West is the toughest division in college football. So it's in- it's entirely possible that this does not work out. Um, but I I mean, you'd be you'd be crazy not to bet on Leach, though, in this situation. Right. Like, he, won, he, won, he, be, he was ba- he's basically the greatest coach in Texas Tech history. And I've been to Lubbock. There's nothing in Lubbock. Um <laughs> And it's, I mean, it is truly in the middle of nowhere and Pullman's the same way. I mean, Leach is not the greatest coach in Washington state history. Washington state has had some very, very good coaches come through their doors, but I don't think that diminishes that, you know, Washington state's a very tough job and he did a very good job winning football games there. Um, And his offense, his offense works. I mean, I, I think what's interesting is if you look at where Leach often runs into trouble, um, 
And you could say this schematically about like Jonathan Smith this season too, when he ran into other good defensive schemes and there was a significant talent gap, um, you know, Leach ran into trouble. He, he in the Apple Cup every year he had a problem, and that was Washington also has a very good defense. You know, they have a very good scheme on defense, and they have very very good players, better players than he has. Um, and he should not be at that kind of significant disadvantage in Starkville. Um, he should be able to recruit, you know, for the first time in, in Mike Leach's career, he should be able to put together a top 25 recruiting class. But that I think on its own is where if I have questions about Leach in this job, it's at recruiting because he is going to have to uh, step it up a level. I mean, he's mostly gotten by in recruiting and um, in these backwaters of just sort of, you know, getting his guys, he's not had to go out and hire guys that were, you know, just pure, you know, recruiting monsters. And you're, you are absolutely going to have to, um, cause he's got Lane Kiffin's a very good recruiter at Ole Miss. Ed Orgeron is a monster, you know, has a monster recruiting staff. Nick Saban prioritizes recruiting above all other things. I mean, you're going to, and, and you have yet again, like we didn't even mention like Jimbo Fisher, who's won a national championship and also is a good recruiter. I mean, that's, that's right. If, if Mike Leach falls flat, it's because he doesn't, he, he doesn't step it up for recruiting and get the players. Yeah, and that doesn't mean that he hasn't been able to bring some solid players to Washington State. But for the most part, they're at the skill positions. He always usually has a four-star quarterback. He has the upper three-and-a-half-star wide receivers and the four-star wide receivers. But you're absolutely right, Rob, when it comes to recruiting the offensive line, the defensive line, any any skill – like I use skill position with air quotes here. But like any of the linebacker core or safeties and cornerbacks, they're all three-stars and like two-stars. So it'll be interesting to see if he's able to – step up the uh the skill talent on that front moving on to where washington state is left they um but by, uh, by the way on monday on sharpcollegefootball.com we're going to put up all of the departing seniors and transfers and all this stuff so that'll be the next team that we um release on the website but i'm going to keep a really close eye on washington state because i'm curious to see what happens in terms of players whether or not they decide to transfer i know max borgie immediately tweeted out that he was excited that he'll be able to run the ball more which i thought was pretty funny um but one of the things that will be interesting to see is who they actually bring in and then there's been some interesting names Max that have been floating around there. I'm curious if any caught your eye. Well, I think that the two that I think would be the biggest home run hires are Alex Grinch, the Oklahoma defensive coordinator and Graham Harrell, the USC offensive coordinator, just because they both have Washington state ties. Uh, they're both young or, or and I, I just think that they both, yeah, they, they, they just both seem like uh, coaches that can win in Pullman and they have results. I mean, the Oklahoma defense was absolutely shredded against LSU, but I thought what Grinch did overall in his first year in Norman was impressive. And then Graham Harrell uh, completely turned around a dormant USC offense, uh, at least in T. Martin's final season uh, in his first year in L.A. So I think both of those would be exciting, buzzworthy hires um, for Washington State. Yeah, I, one of the things to that front would be, I think that if I were Graham Harrell or I were Alex Grinch, I would sit a little bit because Washington State's a really tough job. That That is a tough place to win. It's a tough place to recruit. Um, yes, it is a Power 5 conference, but you're going to be starting with a system. And now, frankly, the good thing is that, uh, at least for Graham Harrell, you do have the wide receivers and the wider and the quarterback talent to some extent. But you also lose Gage Gabrud. You lose Trey Tinsley. 
Philly. And of course, you leave, uh, you lose Anthony Gordon. So you lose the three quarterbacks that uh, basically were the guys there at Washington State. Um, but if I were those two guys, I might hold off for a little bit stronger of a job where I know that I'm going to have a little bit more infrastructure on that front. I don't know, Max, does that make sense? Or, or you know, and also, what are the second tier types of coaches? I know the Hawaii coach was mentioned, the coach at Boise State was mentioned, and a couple other names were floating around. Some of them, I just, when I saw them, I almost gagged a little bit, but. <laughs> yeah, I, I think, I think Nick Rolovich would be uh, an exciting uh, offer as well. Um, I mean, I think Hawaii really, I, I think what he did at Hawaii this past season, even though he was juggling two quarterbacks with Cole McDonald and um, Cordero, but Hawaii overachieved and they went to the Mountain West uh, Conference Championship game. They beat Arizona. They beat Oregon State, which I guess their, the Arizona win might not seem like a lot, but still beating two Pac-12 programs, I, I think, is impressive too. And so, yeah, I think Rolovich would be a good hire. Uh, I, I hadn't heard. Are, are you talking? You said Boise State's defensive coordinator. No, I heard their actual coach was floated around. I mean, the ones where I was gagging a little bit no with Jim Mora was somebody no, that was floated they're, around. They're, I was about, they're not getting Brian Harson. There's no way. I forget the other one. It was Jim Moore, and there was somebody else where I just looked at the name and I rolled my eyes a little bit. <laughs> Jim, Moore, Jim Moore would be gross. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think, Rob? I mean, Rolovich is probably like, if, if you're. I don't know that Alex Grinch. I think the point on you know that maybe yeah, Grinch should you know sit pat. Um, Grinch had Joe Salavea as his defensive line coach. The guy that's the defensive line coach in Oregon is a, a really solid recruiter. Um, and, and, and line coach as his defensive line coach when he was in Pullman. I don't know that Alex Grinch maybe goes back to Pullman unless he really knows he can he can get somebody like unless he has some guys like that in mind um, that he knows he can get that, you know, have the recruiting connections and and can coach him up um, that, that can help make his defense work. I think Rolovich should be a great name for, for Washington State. They need a wrinkle, <laughs> if you will, um, to compete in the Pac-12 being in Pullman. Um, and, I mean, if not, if you start getting out of it, it's a, it's a tough – it's a tough market for Washington State because the the guys that are sort of that you would look at and say are sort of the big names in you know Group of Five football right now um, that had some pretty good years. Uh, they're they're you know a, a lot of them are out east. You know you're not going to get Luke Fickle's not going to leave Cincinnati to come. Billy Napier's not going to leave um, you know Louisiana to come. Uh, it's it's a if they're in a tough spot, I guess you, I guess you could say. So if not, then, you know, and if, and if Harrell says no, then they should really, I mean, maybe the guy in North Texas, I forgot. Is it, it's Seth Luttrell. Um, who's got some PAC 12 experience. He coached at Arizona for a bit, uh, was the OC there, uh, under Mike Stoops. Um, there's some, there's some decent names out there. I, but they're, if not, then they should maybe look for uh, an innovative name, you know, from uh, a coordinator spot, like an offensive coordinator to, to give a shot to. Yeah, a couple more names to throw out. I know Steve Sarkeesian was thrown out. That was the other one where I was throwing up in my mouth just a little bit. Um, the other one was Sonny Dykes. And then 
Uh, one name, Rob, that I thought that you might want to talk a little bit about is Joe Salvea, who you just mentioned as being a coordinator yeah. and recruiter. And you've talked in the past on the podcast about maybe, well, I wouldn't even say maybe, I would say certainly not an X's and O's guy, but maybe somebody that can actually jump those coordinator positions because of his recruiting prowess and maybe because he has the experience and the connections with players where he can run a program but maybe isn't making the calls. Yeah, I mean, and there's there's guys like this. I mean, Ed Orgeron was never a defensive coordinator. He went straight from being a defensive line coach to being a head coach. Um, and being a coordinator is a specific skill, and it's not necessarily the same skill that takes you know the same skill set that takes uh, it takes to be a head coach. And Salovey is a guy that uh, you know he's, he's compensated very well. He's you know assistant head coach. He's got some title inflation that's gone on to keep him happy at Oregon. Um, but he's not. I, I I look at him and I see a guy that I don't think is going to get a defensive coordinator shot. He's an Arizona alum, so we get these questions all the time when Arizona has a defensive coordinator opening. Everybody's like. Joe Salaveo, bring him back. And there's, there's a reason he hasn't gotten a DC shot. Um, but he's a great recruiter and he is, he's, he's put in the time to, that I think a program probably takes a shot on him as a, a head coach first. Um, you'd expect it. I, I would maybe expect like if, if Nick Rolovich took the Washington state job, Salaveo probably gets a look at the Hawaii job, but Washington state should definitely take a look at him. Cause he's, he's got experience in the program. Uh, he's got tons of experience in recruiting ties around the PAC 12. He knows a lot of coaches around the PAC 12 in the region. So he'd be able to put a staff together. Uh, and that, that on its own, like, you know, with his recruiting connections and proven ability to recruit, that could really help. Um, you know, if he if he hires a good OC and a good DC, they might be in a good spot. Yeah, Max, what do you think about those last couple of names before we move on here to some of the other uh, coordinator positions that were hired? Yeah, I mean, I, I think with Oregon defensive line coach Salvea, I I was really impressed with the work that he did this season with that position group. And I guess like I'm always a little wary, like with. The, uh, the other coach that uh, Mississippi State was considering was the, the Patriots uh, wide receivers coach, Joe Judge, who ended up being the Giants uh, head coaching hire. And I was miffed by that because when I was watching the Patriots this year, I felt like wide receiver was like their, their worst unit. Yeah, look at Nikhil Harry. <laughs> like, he yeah, so, was awesome in college. Uh, and with Oregon's defensive line, like, um, I mean, Jordan Scott, uh, Kayvon Thibodeau, like, th- that was a group that definitely made impact plays and with the recruiting aspect i think that that would be a a strong hire as well well let's move on here to some of the coordinator positions there was one big hire from washington we're expecting a big hire from oregon that hasn't happened yet and then of course we talked a little bit about cal's offensive coordinator but want to address a question that we received from one of our listeners but let's do that right after this i'm alex rodriguez and i'm jason kelly from bloomberg this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and, not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. 
All right, we're back. And outside of the news of Mike Leach departing to the SEC, the biggest news we had is Josh Donovan was hired as the offensive coordinator at Washington. And an interesting background here, he was the tight ends coach in 2016 for the Jacksonville Jaguars. He coached the quarterbacks in 2017 and 2018 and was the running backs coach this past year in 2019, but also had some play calling duties as an offensive coordinator with Penn State for 2014, then 2015. And then uh, from 2011 to 2013, he was the play caller at Vanderbilt. And I don't know, guys, I found this to be a bit of an underwhelming hire. Max, let's start with you before we get into some of the beta numbers here. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. Um, I, I was just looking at his numbers and with, with Penn at Penn state, like he was the guy before Joe Moorhead and Penn state's offensive numbers were really underwhelming uh, at least compared to when Moorhead took over and, and turned and transformed them into like a, a top 10 explosive and efficient offense. And so I just thought that Callan Moore was, was the big name and that definitely would have been an exciting hire. But, yeah, I think that Washington could have done a lot better given that, 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 I mean, for Jimmy Lake, like, he needs to get off to a fast start. And that and Donovan, I, I just feel like Washington could have pulled out a bigger name. What do you think, um, uh, Rob? Do you agree with that? And I'm curious to see where Baderink and uh, had some of those numbers on the passing and rushing and just the way that he was able to control the offense at Penn State. I, and I'd add a caveat that when – uh, when Donovan was at Penn State, it was in the midst of the sexual assaults um, uh, overhang, like the child abuse scandal that was happening. So there was some deficiencies in recruiting, but still, uh, the, I don't think the numbers were there. I mean, he's, this hire was a this hire was a total head scratcher for me. Um, so his Vanderbilt teams, I mean, that 2012 Vanderbilt squad, uh, they came in at 53 in beta rank. He was 70. In 2013 at Vanderbilt, uh, in 14, yeah, sure. I mean, I'm not like I, I don't. I mean, he had Christian Hackenberg. I mean, like it's not like he had like a bunch of nobodies. Um, you know, like there there were some problems, but coming in at 108 in Beta Rank is pretty inexcusable. I, I feel like at a, at a school like Penn State, uh, they, oh yeah, and some... Rob, Rob, to clarify, like he was in no way connected to the the yeah. sexual scandal. I just, he was hired after that all happened as their offensive coordinator. So just yes. want to be very clear. Oh, no, like when I say there were some problems, I mean, like there were some problems on like the roster wasn't perfect. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah. like there was, there were some guys that they had moved around out of position. Like the offensive line wasn't great. Um, but like I said, like still, like I, I, I fully expect like the, like a, a good coordinator, like a very good coordinator, like the, the kind that if you want to go out and compete for national championships, make the playoff that kind of thing like that kind of coordinator gets hired and makes an immediate difference um and they just i mean penn state got worse from 2013 to 2014 like they were 61 in beta rank in in, in 2013 like it's that that part of it is very perplexing to me because everyone is acting like oh they were just awful and it wasn't his fault like they got worse when he took over by a considerable margin. Um, now, the next year, they jump up to 64 in beta rank, um, which is a big improvement, but that's still a very, very bad power five offense. They hired Joe Moorhead the next year, and they're number nine in beta rank uh, and number three the year after. Uh, and then Moorhead leaves, and they you you see that kind of a drop-off when a top coordinator leaves. And, yes, they lost Saquon Barkley and um, – that next year too, but they dropped to number 34 in beta rank. They're number 29 this season. Um, I, I actually think that Penn state got a 
a little bit of a, a, a boost when their offensive coordinator moved on and they were able to make a higher Minnesota's offensive coordinator um, for this season. But it's it, then he went after he went that he went to the Jacksonville Jaguars and he was an offensive, like not a when it, he was like a, an analyst with Jaguars, not an on field coach, not a position coach. Um, it's just an, like, just a really strange hire. I, I felt like and it's not to say that like he's he, he's likely to be an improvement over Bush Hamdan, um, but that's a really low bar. And if you're if you're Washington and you really if you really think that your ceiling is, you know, maybe winning a playoff semifinal, you know, maybe you get lucky and win a national championship. This is this isn't the hire that's going to get you there. Like this yeah. just isn't. Like, oh, totally. <laughs> and I was scratching my head when it came out, too, because I thought. Man, they were in the running for some some solid names and Joe Moorhead is a, Joe Moorhead. <laughs> well, Joe Moorhead was in Eugene to be frank, to be frank. Right, but I mean like Joe Moorhead, the guy that replaced him after he got walked out the door, doesn't have a job. I mean, a, a name that gets kicked around and I'm really surprised nobody in Pac-12 is hired because I mean, he totally cleaned up a total I mean a disaster that Jim Moorhead created at UCLA is Jed Fish. I mean, Jed Fish would be a better hire. I mean, there are a number of guys that basically don't even have coaching jobs at the moment that would have been better hires than this. Yeah, and to your point, you know, Washington is a team that does have the resources. If you look at some of the other schools, you kind of go under, all right, how are they going to scrape up the money to be able to get a big name? Where Washington is and should be a premier program in the Pac-12 and has been carrying a lot of water for the Pac-12 for a number of years. And, yeah, anyway, now that – there is a scenario where Josh Donovan does incredibly well and Washington does great. And, uh, but at least for right now, it doesn't look like, uh, the record is there. And one of the things, if you go to sharpcollegefootball.com right now, um, I did a deep dive not only into beta ranks numbers, but also the S and P plus. And I also broke them out between rushing and passing uh, offense. So if you want a really solid look at how Donovan did over five years, uh, definitely take a look there because we highlighted some of that front. Uh, one thing to mention guys at Cal last week, we were talking about how Bill Musgrave was hired as their offensive coordinator. And we kind of said that, Oh yeah, this seems like a, a decent hire. And, and um, Rummington Nation, I'm sorry, Ruminating Orion, some of these sort of angle handles are tough to read, um, asked us, uh, he said, I love, love the podcast, but you mentioned that you liked Musgrave as a good hire. Love to hear why you guys think that would be the case. And I get where he's coming from, because sometimes when you look at some of these NFL hires, oftentimes they don't quite work out on the uh, particularly on the coordinator front. It's a different league. Uh, the NFL tends to be more physical and less creative on the offensive side. The college game, I, I would argue, is where a lot of the innovation is happening. So Cal bringing on an NFL old hand who was with the Broncos and the Raiders and Philadelphia and Carolina and really hasn't called plays in, uh, since 2002 when he was at Virginia. Um, so I, I guess there, there's reason to be skeptical on that front. But I'm curious, Max, what you think about that hire? Sure. So I mean, Musgrave, um, I would say that the um, beginning of like his NFL coaching career, he might have been a little flat, but he got to coach with Chip Kelly at the Eagles um, back in, let me see, uh, 2014, where he was the quarterback's coach of that team. And then actually his uh, next job, he joined the Raiders uh, under Jack Del Rio, and he was uh, the offensive coordinator there for two years. And it seemed like that he was that like he reshaped his offense after spending time with Chip. 
And that ended up being uh, Derek Carr. His He had like that MVP year before he uh, suffered that season-ending injury. And, I mean, when he took over the offensive coordinator job, the, the Raiders ranked last in uh, yardage per game on offense and 31st in scoring. And then and he turned them into a top-10 unit. And then his uh, last job was with the Broncos, and they were middle of the pack. But that was with Case Keenum as quarterback. And like a really uh, subpar, like uh, offensive line and skill position guys. So I think that one, and it was, and uh, it was under first year head coach and Vance Joseph as well. So I'm not really taking the the one year with the Broncos at, with too much of a grain of salt. But I, I'm I'm really encouraged with the work that he did uh, with the Raiders, and I think having a, a middle of the pack offense with the Broncos in his last job, I'm. I, I I still think that that's impressive, even though like he was only there for a year. Yeah, Rob, I had taken a little bit of a look at what he had done in the NFL, but the biggest thing that was going in my mind was, well, he's not Bo Baldwin, so he'll probably be better. <laughs> I don't know what you think. <laughs> well, I mean, some NFL guys that I follow um, really like to hire, uh, and they thought that he had, uh, as you had meant, as Max had mentioned, that he had uh, retooled his offense. Um, and, and was running, you know, a much more modern, innovative offense and, and uh, you know, with the Raiders and, and, you know, guys has written him off, said, oh, no, like, I'm, you know, look what he's doing. So when when a lot of folks around, you know, that I sort of follow around the NFL, um, were, you know, came around and then I, I went and looked at the football outsider numbers. And, yeah, those, those Raider offenses were pretty good under him. So, yeah, I would say, that, I mean, those are my reasons for thinking it's a good hire. It's, I mean, Cal needs some offensive uh uh, you know, they, they definitely could use a little bit of a schematic and, uh, advantage and some stability. And um, Musgrave's a, a, a big improvement over where they were with Bull Baldwin. But I mean, honestly, like, here's the like, how much better of a hire is this than the Donovan hire at Washington? I mean, that um, if if Washington had come away with Musgrave, I think they like the it would have been an easier sell even uh, than Donovan, who's you know more recently been in college um, and in theory runs more of a college offense. Okay, yeah, I follow you. A couple more items here of news: uh, Paulson Debo has decided to return to Stanford, which is good news considering all the departures that had happened there in the transfer portal. So uh, nice to have him return to the Pac-12 and wreck some havoc in the secondary. And then Oregon is going to hold a press conference. We're recording this podcast on Sunday. This is going to release likely on Monday. And on Monday, Oregon is going to host a uh, press conference with four of their top players that are draft eligible and could possibly return to the program. So we'll find out whether Thomas Grand, Jordan Scott, and company end up returning back to Eugene. So big news there. And it'll be interesting to see because there are a lot of really solid players that have an opportunity to play one more year at Oregon, but have not decided to do so yet. Um, anything else on the Pac-12 football front, guys? Uh, not that I can think of. Okay. Well, uh, I, well, actually, you know what? You know what? There is one thing. I am pumped and pump may be a too aggressive a term that we get Pac-12 refs in New Orleans tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking about that because the entire country is going to be focused on this. And the only thing that goes through my mind anytime we talk about Pac-12 refs is the um, is the glasses ref where he's making the wrong side of the ball that the ball is actually supposed to go and he's fumbling through what he's going on. Unfortunately, he is no longer part of the Pac-12 crew, but um, – Let's let's put this uh, over under on on bad calls. Let's put it at three and a half. What do you think, Max? Oh, well, I, I absolutely think that there's going to be a, a, like a game swinging 
blown call from this crew. And I cannot wait for the Pac-12 to be at the forefront of the conversation in this national championship game. Any press coverage is good press coverage, Max. Am I right, Rob? <laughs> no. <laughs> I think they're serious. I mean, the Pac-12 hasn't been to a championship game since Oregon uh, five years ago, four years ago. Um, yeah. I mean, getting, you know, the only way you get mentioned in the title game is because your refs blow it. Oh, man. <laughs> All right, so I had us all come up with one topic that we were going to bring up on the podcast when not tell anybody until we record, and we're going to tie a big fat bow on the Pac-12 season and announce a new segment that we're going to do, and we have Pac-12 basketball, but let's do it right after this. All right, we're back, and want to try a new segment where um, – where each one of us is going to come with a subject to bring to the table. And we haven't talked about this before we started recording. What do you got here, Rob? Uh, I actually, it's, it's Pac-12 related. Uh, John Wilner had a piece up about the, uh, the SEC and the ESPN signing a deal. So the, uh, the, CBS's deal with the SEC is expiring. Um, they SEC is now signed a deal for a lot more money um, for their prime time, you know, their their first pit games to go to ESPN. Um, and in some ways, this could be good for the Pac-12 if if, this, if CBS ended up maybe finding a way to feed, you know, if they don't give up on college football entirely, and you know, they they maybe you know sign the Pac-12, but. There, there's a good shot that ESPN doubles down on the SEC, um, and the Pac-12 could be even further financially behind uh, coming out of the, the next round of negotiations. And that, if you're a Pac-12 fan, is is distressing. You know, it struck me. I was watching something on NBC, and I forget what it was. It was probably one of the NFL games, and the like the B footage role, like the the Sizzler plate things that they did of the coming season, and it was like golf and the tour de France and bullying. And I'm like, this is stupid. I'm wondering if they're going to give up on it. Cause I know that NBC's big thing is having Notre Dame and maybe they stick with that, but it seems like college football is one of the hot ticket items. And that always draws attention. And there's just been so many good stories. One of the things that drives me nuts, Matt's or Max are people that only focus on the NFL and say, Oh, well, like college is just less good NFL. It's like, yes. And that is why it's fun because it is less good and crazy. And we have stupid coaches and dumb decisions. And also these incredible bears that like are also really, really smart, <laughs> you know, like, like very, very intelligent players. And then when you add the additional, uh, the creativity on the on the offensive front and even on the defensive front too with some of these schemes. I know it just seems like I would hope that CBS sticks with football and hopefully the Pac-12 can get some sort of contract where we're getting the money to be able to hire some really good coordinators because we're falling behind when it comes to that front. Yeah, and no, I, I definitely think CBS. I mean, really anything compared. I I just think that as. <laughs> Well, I mean, obviously, Larry Scott's still trying to grow out Pac-12 Network, and, and that, that'll be there as long as he's in charge. But, yeah, getting getting Pac-12 um, on more of a national platform would be awesome. And, I mean, actually, I saw on CBS for next week, they have, they're have they showing the Oregon-Washington uh, basketball game uh, next weekend, which I thought was really interesting because I, I don't we don't get a lot of Pac-12 games on CBS. And, yeah, yeah so it's just, you know, another – platform that the conference can utilize and i think you know that would yeah that would definitely be a a a plus move but giving that 
giving Larry Scott the benefit of the doubt to make something happen, that that kind of seems far fetched. We're huge in China, Max. We're huge in China. Never forget. That. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, what do you got, Max? All right, so actually, I was on a similar uh, line of thinking with you, Brian. So Oscar nominations are tomorrow morning, and so I was going to ask you guys favorite movie that you've seen this year and most disappointing. Oh, hmm. I have not seen 1917, which is one that I really want to go see. Um, and I've heard really good things about that. Plus, um, I'm, I'm a really big fan of Hardcore History, which is um, Dan Carlin's podcast. And he does an amazing series on World War One and just the crap that all those guys had to go through. Like they were leaving guys out there um, to just suffer shell shock for like months and months and months. And they didn't figure out that they had to rotate the troops after a while. I mean, like just so I'm, I'm really, really excited about 1917. Um, I actually this is this has no Oscar nod at all. But um, and actually, it's a little bit removed from actual film, but still in the same genre. I was really disappointed with the Mandalorian and I am shocked at how many good reviews there have been about it. Like I thought the writing was poor. I thought there's like, there's nobody in the movie. So like, there's no stakes. Uh, Like the most people in a film shot are like, like 15 extras. So even when, when they try to save that village, there's like 18 villagers. (laughs) So the stakes are really low. Um, I don't know. Like I, I I thought the Mandalorian was, was actually really disappointing. And I'm surprised that there was so much love on that front. Um, that's kind of my my knee jerk reactions. I don't know. What do you think, Rob? Uh, I have, I'm I'm the worst. I actually have like barely seen any movies, <laughs> so I, I haven't seen I haven't seen any of the movies that I think will be nominated. Um, but the ones that I wanted to like, I really want to see in 1917. I have a history degree, among others. So um, yeah, that's that's about it. Where I'm at. Max, do you get out to watch a lot of movies? Uh, well, it's funny. So my sister actually works in film and my parents love movies, but I feel like I'm an, I'm on an Island with how few movies I see personally. Like I've seen a few of the contenders that like, um, I, I saw, uh, marriage story. I feel, I don't know if Joker's going to be nominated for best picture, but it's definitely going to have some, uh, some big nominations, um, Knives Out. I Knives Out. I really, really loved. It was it was a fun movie. And anytime you get Daniel Craig in a Southern accent, I, I feel like it could definitely be a joyride there. Uh, the one that I really want to see uh, that I haven't yet is Parasite. Okay, I've been watching Shit's Creek with my wife, and I love that show. It is it is quite funny, and I've always been a fan of Catherine O'Hara and Eugene Levy. So when they came back together to uh, do a show, I was like all in. And I just think the characters that they developed are really really good. I'm looking at some uh, of the names here. Oh, so. I was, well, I was going to say most disappointing. I w- really had incredibly high expectations for Uncut Gems, and I I just thought it was okay. I I didn't think I didn't think it was great. Oh, and I, I just mm-hmm. I just thought that a movie about sports betting and I, I, I read all the reviews and everyone was saying that Adam Sandler delivered an amazing performance. And, and, and you know, I, I actually was impressed with the performance, but that ugh, I don't know. I just that movie like left me really uncomfortable and they got some uh, facts about sports betting. Like, like they kind of stretched that out a bit. Um, like it, it was just an accurate portrayal, I guess, with some of his bets. And so I, I really wanted to love it, but I, I, I just, I didn't. 
Okay, okay. Let's get to Pac-12 basketball because we had another really interesting slate of games, and it looks like the conference is sorting itself out a little bit. Um, and we don't need another commercial break. We've already done our two. So let's get right into it. And the the Thursday slate was quite interesting. You had Arizona at Oregon. You had Washington at Stanford, Washington State at Cal, and Arizona State at Oregon State. And let's start with the premier game, which is Arizona at Oregon. Arizona came out and shot incredibly well and probably should have won that game, um, which is really tough. Like, Oregon is an amazing team. They play incredibly well at home. I think Dana Altman is the best coach in the Pac-12. But Arizona shot fairly well, was able to defend a decent amount, and basically choked the game uh, away at the end. And I was I was wanted to hear what you thought about that game, Max, because I was watching. I was actually watching with Hippoliday, Rob. <laughs> we were watching at a bar oh. in Portland, um, and it was it was really really fascinating to watch, particularly because Peyton Pritchard didn't have a great game, but was able to to start sealing things up at the end. Yeah, and I I came away from this game thinking that Arizona was the better team, even though uh, I actually made Oregon the best bet uh, for that night. But no, I I was really I thought. My thinking for this was that um, Oregon with Dana Altman, I mean, he switches things up on defense with his matchup zone, and I, and I thought that Arizona would have to shoot well in order to uh, compete with the Ducks, and I just didn't trust their shooting in big games. But this game, uh, I mean, particularly Dylan Smith, like he, he had a, uh, I think he made at least a few three-pointers. And uh, Nico Mayen I was really impressed with. Uh, I thought he played a really nice all-around game. I, I guess besides, he had a, a couple turnovers. And I, and Arizona's last two uh, possessions at the end of regulation were, were also a nightmare. And, yeah, I, I thought when Zeke Nagy made that uh, elbow jumper to put them up six that it was over. But uh, Oregon came back. And Oregon, I mean, Pritchard was uh, Pritchard was fine. He, he wasn't really anything special. Uh, he missed a lot of shots. I actually came out of the Oregon players. I thought Will Richardson really has emerged, and, and he was impressive. And I and probably Dante, uh, their five-star uh, freshman big man. Once he like gets, once he gets going, just because he missed uh, a good chunk of the beginning of the season, I think that he's definitely going to be an impact player down the stretch. But yeah, yeah no, I, I just thought that these were two fairly even teams, and so Arizona. Um, like I, I had uh, improved in my power rating and Oregon slight decrease. One thing to keep in mind is with Arizona, and, and I understand that I watch more Arizona basketball than uh, most teams. But that's been in the past years. I've actually been trying to make sure that I'm watching each Pac-12 team throughout this coming season and have seen a decent amount of, including Washington State. I was watching the Washington State-Stanford game in the middle of an NFL playoff game. So the, the, the sacrifices we make for this podcast. Um, but... Arizona is terrible at end of in a game and end of half plays. Like they just, Sean Miller does not uh, put together good uh, plays that put the team in a position to get a shot off. And Nico Mannion's falling down to the ground, just throwing the ball up in the air was not at all surprising <laughs> to me. Um, you know, another game that really stood out for me on Thursday was Washington loses 55 to 61. This is a big win for Stanford because Washington now, uh, 
to be fair, this is without Quade Green, who is somebody that uh, was able to move that offense more uh, with the Huskies, but uh, ended up not playing this game. He's ruled academically ineligible until basically March Madness or the Pac-12 tournament. Really interesting to see if he's able to come back for that. Um, but big win for Stanford to be able to come out. Um, they had four, te- four players score more than double digits in this game and uh, and also waxed Washington State in their homestand, ended up sweeping the Washington schools, Rob. Uh, is Stanford legit at thirteen and two? I mean, they're certainly in the in the realm of you know like the middle of the Pac twelve. I mean, Bowl or Cal swept the Washington schools. I mean, the Washington schools went over the Bay Area uh, on on this weekend. So it was. I I, I think Stanford's there. Um, you know, like I don't know that they're in. I don't know that I would put them. I, I think you'd still put slot Colorado ahead of them, um, and. Maybe USC, depending on how USC's playing, but Stanford's you know solidly there. They they uh, put it on Washington State um, and then you know beat Washington. Max Washington came into this year with a really highly rated recruiting class, some pretty solid talent. They play well at home, and now they're sitting at eleven and six with losses to Cal. Um, in Stanford and Houston and UCLA, which is a bad loss. And they're going into Oregon. <laughs> um, they do actually, to be fair, they have Oregon at home and Oregon state at home. But I mean, would you say that this is a much must, must win homestand for them to get in the tournament? Absolutely. Yeah, no, I, I would say that they're uh, outside the bubble for now. They definitely need to pick up some marking wins. And I, well, they, they have Baylor to start the season. Yeah. Other than that, uh, I just feel that this Washington team, has been uh, a disappointment, but I, I wasn't very high on them uh, to begin with. And just because I thought when they originally had Quade Green, he was supposed to be joining them in the middle of the season. And I just didn't really trust their guards sitting up to that. And I thought that it would take a while to adjust with him uh, once he became eligible. And now that he's out, I think that you're seeing the issues that I, that were expected uh, coming into this season. I mean, against Stanford, they had 21 turnovers and five assists. That that's like really, really inexcusable. And that and that game, I mean, the Huskies had a, an enormous second half meltdown. And they took advantage of the first half when Stanford uh, Dejan Davis uh, was knocked out of, of, for a lot of the first half after taking an elbow to the head. And Oscar De Silva uh, picked up two early fouls, and, and so he was on the bench for quite a bit as well. And so that's why Washington was able to get a lead. But yeah, we, and then losing in overtime to Cal, yikes. But we saw in both games Isaiah Stewart, who's been one of the most impressive freshmen in the country, he didn't have his best games in either of those games. And Washington just doesn't have enough besides him. I mean, they do have five-star Jaden McDaniels, but he's been really inconsistent throughout the year. But if they, if they aren't getting Isaiah Stewart's best production, uh, this isn't a team that uh, it, they won't go dancing. And I, I think that they might not even be a top-five Pac-12 team, honestly, without Wadi Green. Yeah, another team that's on the bubble is Arizona State, who won on the road at Oregon State and actually played pretty competitive against Oregon that entire game. Uh, One of the things that was interesting for me, Max, was the, um, and I would put Arizona State in this genre, but teams that have completely melted down in games. And I know Arizona State played well on the road with against Oregon, but Arizona State just melted down against Arizona where they, they just, at the end of that game, they did not care. And then if you move over to USC playing at Washington and melting down and they, they were shooting 24% into, in like the end of the, the second half. I mean, it was abysmal. And then Washington state doing,
doing the same thing. It was 46 to 18 at the half when they played Stanford. I don't know if I've seen a Pac-12 um, where you have this many teams just giving up in the middle of the game before. I've, I, don't, I don't think I've seen that before, but it might just be that I hadn't watched enough games uh, outside this one year. Have you seen anything like this? Uh, I mean, well, Arizona State, like, I, I feel like with the, at least with the St. Mary's blood, like a lot of it was just, I mean, Mary's was absurdly hot from the outside in that game. I mean, Jordan Ford, just like he was the human flamethrower in that game. It was unbelievable. But yeah, I mean, with this Arizona State team, I wouldn't even say that they're on the bubble. I mean, they're, they're my most disappointing, like them in Washington are my two most disappointing Pac-12 teams this year. I, I thought Arizona State, um, with the, the four that were considered the top of the Pac-12, Arizona, Oregon, Washington, and Colorado, I thought Arizona State had the best chance uh, to leapfrog uh, pass, uh, into that tier. And, yeah, it's just been really disappointing. Uh, Remy Martin's really good, but the problem with the Sun Devils for a lot of the season is that their shooting has been atrocious. And finally, uh, against Oregon State and Corvallis, they were able to hit, like, I want to say like 45% or 50% from three. Let me just check that quickly. And, and, and that's why that they were able to score. Yeah. They were eight to 16 from three and yeah, no, like they, they have like some really nice pieces and that's why I was optimistic about them uh, heading into the season. And we'll see if the, they're able to pick up some pac 12 wins. Cause yeah, they're going to need a really strong showing in conference play to even have a chance of making um, the, the big dance. And they might even have to win the pac 12 tournament, honestly. But yeah, it, it starts. Uh, I actually think so. I can tell you just because it's it's a classic Pac-12 spot. Uh, Colorado's coming into Tempe on Thursday, and Arizona State's a hundred percent going to be a home underdog. And Arizona State will a hundred percent be a best bet for me on Thursday night for SI. <laughs> uh, and I'm glad you mentioned Colorado. Just wiped the floor with Utah today, 91 to 52. Another game where you only had one game uh, of like the teams playing their rivals was UCLA and uh, USC. USC went into Westwood and ended up bouncing back and beating UCLA after just an abysmal showing uh, on the road uh, in Washington. Uh, any thoughts on those, Rob? It's it's interesting to see USC. I mean, that that coach and that program. I I, I never know what to do, but I, I like the idea. <laughs> They're not of well coached. They always have a lot of guys who are like, "Oh, that guy will be in the NBA." Uh, <laughs> and they've got a couple. Of, I mean, they have a great recruit. I mean, that's the USC seems like a team that I mean, given where a lot of the Pac-12 is at this season, like they could win some games. I don't I don't expect them to maybe make the tournament. Um, Colorado, I mean, that's, it does feel like, I mean, I didn't think it was legal for Colorado to score 91 points. So Utah, congrats. Um, they'll, they, I, I agree with you, Max. Like, I, I think that this could be a tough spot for them going into Tempe. Um, but they're, they're a team that, I mean, they can't afford to have too many Pac-12 losses. I mean, like, we get a losses on their resume either. I mean, they, you look across the Pac-12, I mean, other than, like you mentioned, that Washington win versus Baylor, like not a lot of great wins out of conference. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you. Um, let's take a look at the games coming up here. Arizona, the Arizona schools have the Mountain Schools. The uh, Washington schools have the Oregon schools. The 
the Southern California schools have the Northern California schools here. So on Thursday, we have Utah at Arizona, Oregon at Washington State, Colorado at, at ASU, which you had mentioned as a best bet, Max. You have Cal at USC and Oregon State at Washington. Anything else stand out for you in that slate? In, in terms of betting or in terms of like, like in terms of what? Yeah, both. Either or. Uh, well, let me just pull up the uh, Ken Palm lines because I feel like you'll get a give or take. But um, with Cal, I feel like I'm probably going to be trying to fade. Well, actually, so Cal and Stanford, I, I remember looking this up quite a, a while ago. They only left the state of California once so far this season. So I actually, and, and USC, UCLA, those are two road games, obviously, in the state of California. But they don't leave the state of California again until uh, the beginning of February. So from November 5th to February 6th, just one road trip for each Cal and Stanford outside the state, which I find fascinating. But with Cal, um, that's probably a team where I'm going to be looking to sell a bit high. Um, just because with the uh, Washington State and Washington wins, like I, I'm, I'm down on Washington. I just thought that Cal, uh, I mean, like they definitely got up for that game, and that's going to be an emotional win for that program, beating like a, a, a middle of the Pac-12 team. But USC just is they're a different beast at home, and I think that inside with the Kong Wu and Rakosovich, they're going to be too much for the Bears to handle. Um, UCLA Stanford, whatever the under is, uh, Ken Palm has it at 132. I would be pretty surprised if those teams reach 130. Uh, Stanford just has so much trouble scoring, and especially with UCLA's size, I I think that that could definitely be a problem if if Stanford isn't hitting outside shots, and UCLA's offense is is still a train wreck. Um, Yeah, and and like. The most Pac-12 thing that's going to happen is, like, um, I, I can totally see uh, Arizona State beating Colorado and then losing to Utah on Saturday. <laughs> yeah, one game that looks uh, that jumps out for me is Oregon State at Washington. Uh, Oregon State isn't terrible, and like you had mentioned before, Max, they're thin, so it'd be interesting to see if they get into foul trouble. But uh, without Quade Green uh, at Washington, I mean, that seems like it's a team that is trying to figure out what it is. And Oregon State knows what it is. It might not be great, but it knows that it's not great. Uh, I'd be interested to see what the line is on that front, although Washington is a lot dif- more difficult to fight at home. Uh, but, Jim- mm-hmm. well, I would also, for that, I think that Oregon State with Kyler Kelly, who's an unbelievable interior defender like that's like the perfect player that you can have going up against isaiah stewart so you're going to force washington to knock down outside shots and i don't really know if they can do that no absolutely and i think and like kelly's good for like two or three blocks a game um and has really uh, been pretty impressive there in corvallis another game that jumps out is the saturday slate so you have colorado at arizona which will be a fun game you have uh, oregon at washington here's the the game that jumps out for me it's stanford at usc uh, usc is the is the more talented team on paper um but i do like stanford uh I usually try to fade USC anytime they're playing a team that's fundamental. Um, and if Stanford's one thing, it might not be great, but that is a team that is much more fundamental. It seems like better coach this year than USC. What do you think? Yeah, no, I agree with you with that. Like I would think, I would think that Ken Prom probably has it at around USC minus four. Let's see. Yep. Or uh, no, actually. Wow. Okay. Uh, yeah. Ken Prom has, 
USC beating Stanford by one, I would think that that line is like at least uh, three, three and a half. Just because looking at the Stanford games, at least with the betting market, uh, people have been fading the Stanford team, just saying that they're slightly lucky. I mean, just like a couple metrics, like uh, Stanford is 207th in three-point attempt rate, but they're 71st in three-point percentage allowed. And usually with perimeter defense, three-point attempt rate is, is the better measure, just because if you're giving up fewer three-point shots, it's because you know your, your defenders are playing well uh, along the perimeter versus uh, teams can get hot or cold from outside shooting. And so three-point percentage can, is definitely not as strong an indicator. Um, and then also their third in quote-unquote uh, free-throw defense as teams are making under 60% of their free throws against Stanford. And that might not change against uh, USC and UCLA. I mean, both those teams are horrendous from the uh, charity strike. But, yeah, Stanford's profile, definitely a little lucky. And so that's why I think you're, see, you're seeing a better spade this team right now in the market. Yeah. Um, well, let's leave it there. One big announcement that I want to make is that we are going to um, bring on a number of guests as we're in the off season. And what I wanted to do is tie a bow on each team season um, and talk with experts from those programs. So that's going to start next week. Uh, we have Hithliday from Addicted to Quack, who is going to jump on and talk about Oregon season with us and what to look for as we move into 2020, but also just looking back and seeing what Oregon season was, why it was good, uh, what they did well, what they didn't do well. Um, and always really fun to have him on somebody that really knows his X's and O's. And then we have, uh, someone from the Utah Man podcast is going to come on the week afterwards to talk about Utah. What I'm trying to do is go from the top down <laughs> in terms of uh, the teams that we cover so that we go through the teams that, that perform particularly well in the Pac-12 and then move our way down to uh, Arizona and Stanford. Um, anything else we should cover, guys, before we sign off? Uh, well, I, I, we talked about it last podcast, but should we do official score predictions for Clemson LSU? Uh, I will not make a score prediction, but I will take Clemson. Um, I'm curious what you, what you guys think. Uh, I think my official, I think my SI prediction was LSU 35, uh, Clemson 31. But let me pull that up quickly. I definitely, I have like, I have uh, uh, LSU winning, but Clemson covering. I've got, so the model's got LSU at six and a half. Um, ish like six point six seven. Uh, I, I, I think I like LSU. I, I also think it's going to be in that about you know thirty seven, thirty eight range for LSU. Um, I think Clemson gets to thirty one. Yeah, I added an SI actually has thirty eight, thirty five. Oh yeah, it seems like there's going to be a lot of scoring. Um, even though both of these defenses are really solid, Rob, where where is LSU's defense? Um, LSU's defense is at 11. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. And what about uh, Clemson? They top five? Uh, Clemson's, Clemson's defense is number one. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, like, and I, I try to tell people this, like, it's the era of big offense. So, like, the number one LSU offense is, is going to, like, you should expect them to put up points on Clemson. Like, Ohio State, were it not for the turnovers and the, the field goals, um, put up a lot more yards than they put up on points on Clemson. Um, this is actually true of Alabama last year in the title game. Like, Alabama just had some stalled drives, but they, they definitely moved the ball up and down the field on Clemson. So uh, LSU should be able to, to put up some points against uh, Clemson. I think I just I, – if, if anything, it's Clemson's 
special teams give me a little extra pause here. Like uh, this, this, their kicker did not miss any against Ohio State, but uh, he's definitely got a record of missing some kicks this uh, this season. Ooh, right row. Um, that's why I love college football. You have two basically top ten defenses going head to head, and basically everybody's saying that there's going to be sixty points scored in this game, <laughs> which is awesome. Like this is the best sport to to cover. Uh, yeah, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens here. And uh, Max, I'm sure you guys are covering a ton of this stuff on Sports Illustrated Gambling. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think, yeah, we have um, our game preview that'll be out shortly. Uh, and then, yeah, I mean, that's again, like we've been doing NFL playoffs, college basketball, best bets, three-man leave is actually, I, I feel kind of bad. Um, I've been I've been kind of bringing down the team a bit with um, our college basketball best bets. Uh, but yeah, three man weave is abs- they've been killing it with their picks, uh, for SI and yeah, no, I, I'm just, I, I'm really excited about this college basketball season and then just ending it in Vegas for Pac-12 tournament and first week of March madness and just, you know, watching the games, uh, day in and day out. Yeah. One more thing to mention too, is we finished our bull pool and we had three, entries that ended up with 15 points total and that was rob it was adam green from wildcat radio and it was kenneth harris who uh incidentally won our last uh our won our eliminator pool so uh he might clean up he might he's kind of like the c team last year where c team won like two or three contests in a row um rob who who are you personally going to be taking right now we have the line set at five uh, lsu favored by five and a half I'm going to, I'm going to take LSU in that spot. Um, you know, like the, the adjustments that Clemson was able to make, uh, against Ohio state to shut down Ohio state's running game are not going to work as well against LSU's excellent passing game. Um, you know, Joe Burrow is not going to hold the ball <laughs> the way Justin Fields did. Um, so I, I, I like LSU against that number. All right. Well, stay tuned next week when we go through the Pac-12 basketball. We're going to bring a Hithlidae to talk about Oregon. And we have a little bit better sound quality, as I will remember my microphone. So thanks for staying tuned uh, with us today. I uh, apologize again for the echoiness, but I don't think it's actually be too bad. So it'll be interesting to see what we do in post-production. And uh, thanks, guys, for tuning in, and we will catch you next week.